Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, So as Keith said, this is our fourth Sunday now in our On the Way to the Cross series, uh, where we are looking at events near the end of Jesus' life to help prepare us for the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. Now, today is Palm Sunday, meaning that this is the Sunday that commemorates Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem, where he was welcomed enthusiastically by the crowds. And as we talked about last week, um, Palm Sunday was followed by Temple Protest Monday, the day when Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple, announcing that the sacrificial system and this temple, this whole system, is done. And Temple Protest Monday led directly to Good Friday, because when the religious leaders saw Jesus judging that system, they said, we've got to figure out a way to kill this guy. He is too much of a threat. Now today, even though it's Palm Sunday, we are skipping ahead to the Thursday of Holy Week, Uh, That Thursday evening, Jesus celebrated what we call the Last Supper, right? When he instituted uh, what we uh, call communion, right? Where we remember Jesus' sacrifice through the bread and the cup. That was the evening that he washed their feet. Uh, But we're going to focus on what happened after the Last Supper in the very late hours of that Thursday, maybe even the early hours of Good Friday, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane was a garden of olive trees that Jesus and his disciples would sometimes visit. And it was the last place that Jesus went to pray before his arrest. Gethsemane, this is interesting, it actually means oil press. And that's very fitting because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was under immense pressure, anticipating the suffering that he was about to endure. So, we're going to read from Matthew's account, uh, starting in chapter 26. So, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Matthew 26. Um, In case any of you were praying about Ola and Stephanie's wedding... It went beautifully yesterday. It was a fantastic celebration. Um, If I seem a little out of sorts, uh, that's part of the reason why, because it went so well, and it was a lot of fun, and um, got home a little late, but it was was awesome. So thank you to those of you who are praying. Um, All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to... Uh, study the scriptures together. We pray that as we do, you would help our, our hearts and minds to attend to you. Lord, we are open to whatever it is that you want to teach us today. We want to be transformed by your word. So we invite you to work in us. And all God's people said, amen.
All right. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So, for me, the most striking part of that account is the anguish of Jesus. He knows that in less than 24 hours, he is going to be abandoned, beaten, mocked, scourged, humiliated, and crucified. He knows that he is going to feel abandoned by his heavenly Father. He knows that in a few short hours, the powers of sin and death and the devil are going to be unleashed on him without mercy. And as he anticipates this, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is one time where the humanity of Jesus is clear. Historic Christianity has always confessed that Jesus is 
fully human and fully divine. Two natures in one person, human nature and divine nature. This is a holy mystery. And it's not something that our natural minds are able to fully comprehend. And so we tend to make one of two mistakes. One is to think of Jesus as fully divine, but not really a real human being. And, of course, the other one is to think of him as totally human, but not really divine. And the challenge is to keep from falling into either one of those ditches. But for any of us who have a tendency to, ne to neglect the human side of Jesus, to not really think of him as 100% human, the Garden of Gethsemane is a good corrective to that, right? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a Jesus who experiences anxiety. Right? This is not a Jesus who is just calm and reserved in the face of death and suffering. In the Gospel of Luke's account, it says that Jesus' Jesus's sweat was as drops of blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, one possibility is that Jesus literally was sweating blood. Uh, there is a documented condition called hematidrosis, uh, where that happens sometimes. It's rare, uh, but it happens when the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, and then when the sweat is produced, blood comes out as well. And when it happens, it typically happens to people who are under profound stress, physical or emotional stress. So that's one possibility. Uh, another possibility is that Luke is speaking figuratively. His sweat was like drops of blood. And his purpose in describing it that way is to point to the fact that the drops of sweat that are falling off of him now are in, in anticipation of the blood that he is about to shed on the cross. But either way, whether Jesus is literally sweating blood or not, Clearly, Jesus is not just sweating because he's hot, right? He's sweating because he is in profound anguish, emotional anguish. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. The writer of Hebrews says that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. And we see that here in Gethsemane, right? We see a Jesus that we can relate to. We see a Jesus who experiences that feeling of being overwhelmed. We see a Jesus who could use comfort. The Gospel of Luke says that he receives strength from an angel who comes and ministers to him as he's praying. We see a Jesus who wishes there was another way to fulfill this mission. Three times he prays, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. Meaning, if it's possible to fulfill my mission without drinking down this horrible cup of suffering, let's do it that way. If it's possible to avoid the cross, by all means, let's do that. But he also prays, Father, may your will be done. Now, we have to be careful how we understand the relationship between the Father and the Son here. Because we can make the mistake of thinking that the Father is just eager to inflict suffering on the Son. 
And Jesus is so, so holy that he says, well, Lord, if that's what you want to do, bring it down on me, right? But that sets the father and son against each other too much. The father loves the son. The father is not eager to inflict suffering on the son. That's not what's going on here. What the father really wants to do is to rescue humanity. And he knows that the only way for that to happen, for the power of sin and death to be broken, is for Jesus to endure the cross. It's not about wanting Jesus to suffer. It's about wanting to rescue us. Now, Jesus, the Son, he also wants to rescue humanity. But as a human himself on the precipice of unbelievable suffering, he can't help but wish there was another way to do this. And so he prays, if it's possible, let's do it another way. But he still wants to rescue humanity, which is why he says, not my will, but yours, Father. He wants to avoid the pain of the cross, but not if that means failing at his rescue mission for the world. As a human being, Jesus presents us with a model for what true humanity looks like. And by that I mean what it means for us as human beings to live up to our true calling, what we're tr the way we're truly meant to live. And the model that Jesus gives us, of course, is a really challenging one. A true human is someone who has learned to say, not my will, Lord, but yours. Even when that's hard. Even when it hurts. The spirit of our age has a tendency to encourage us to make our will supreme. Part of that probably comes from being advertised at hundreds of times a day, right? It's all, how can, your will, we have to serve your will, we have to serve your will, right? And that leads us to think that the greatest sin is to not follow our will. You know, it leads us to think that something like Frank Sinatra's My Way is an anthem of righteousness. But Jesus models a different mindset for us. Not my will, Lord, but yours. Now, we should notice, Jesus doesn't teach us to seek suffering. It's not like he sees suffering as some kind of intrinsic good. Right? That's why he prays, Lord, if it's possible, let's do this another way. If possible, terrible suffering and death are good to avoid. Nor does Jesus teach us that there's something intrinsically valuable about denying ourselves pleasure, as if pleasure is in itself bad. I mean, think about it. His first miracle was what? Turning water into wine, right? So that a party wasn't ruined. And his enemies often accused him of being a glutton because he didn't fast enough. So Jesus did not seek suffering, nor did the did he deny himself pleasure for no reason? But avoiding suffering and seeking pleasure were not his ultimate concerns. His ultimate concerns right, were loving God and loving neighbor. And if there were times when his love for God or his love for neighbor required him to forego pleasure or endure suffering, then he did it. That's a model for us for what true humanity is, 
right? Which I would summarize as enjoy the world, but be willing to suffer for the sake of love. Enjoy the world, but be willing to suffer for the sake of love. So Gethsemane shows us the incredible strength of Jesus, but it also shows us the failure of the disciples. The disciples can't seem to get anything right in Gethsemane. And three things, three examples stand out to me. So, of course, first we've got uh, the example of Peter and the sons of Zebedee. Right? Jesus asks them, keep watch while I pray. And you might remember who the sons of Zebedee are, right? We talked about them a couple weeks ago. This is James and John. These were the guys that uh, Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder. So these are supposed to be boisterous, zealous men, right? You would think these would be the kind of guys that Jesus could say, do this, and then they would be like, yes, we'll, we'll do it, right? And they could be counted on to stay up a little late and make sure that Jesus can pray without being attacked, right? But three times, Jesus finds them asleep. They couldn't do it. And Jesus says, probably with a lot of frustration in his voice, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, people can have really good intentions, but the strength to carry them out often is not there. Peter, James, and John probably said, oh yeah, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, each time, all three times. And every time their eyelids got heavy, And they fell asleep. And so often we do the same kind of thing, don't we? We say, yes, Lord, but we lose our drive. You know, the start of every new year. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to pray 20 minutes a day, whatever. And then, you know, two to three weeks in, it's like, ooh, still haven't started. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The other two examples of the failure of the disciples come from Judas and Peter. Let's talk about Judas for a little while. So, Judas, one of Jesus' chosen twelve disciples, picked by him, betrays him. And the Garden of Gethsemane is where that betrayal takes place. So earlier in the week, Judas had gone to the chief priests, the authorities, uh, those who wanted to kill Jesus, and he said, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? And they said, well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And I tried to figure out how much money that was worth back then, and it's really hard to know for sure. But the thing that I read that was the most persuasive indicated, you know, that it would be about the amount of a decent used car today. So, that's money, right? But it's not make you rich kind of money. 30 pieces of silver. But Judas agrees to that deal. And then it says that Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now, why couldn't Judas just do it at any time? That never made sense to me. And uh, the reason is because Jesus was so popular that Judas couldn't just lead the authorities to arrest him when he was out in public, 
because as you saw right, in, at Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides in on, on that donkey to Jerusalem, the crowds go wild. They love him, right? They think this guy is probably the Messiah, right? So the authorities know if we try to arrest him when he's at the temple or at the marketplace, that there's a chance we're going to incite a riot and the people are going to be really upset. So what they needed was for Judas to come to them and tell them when Jesus would be alone or only with his disciples in a private place, preferably at night. And so Judas knew that Gethsemane was the perfect opportunity for Jesus to be arrested. So why did Judas do it? After years of traveling with Jesus, watching him, cast out demons, perform miraculous healings, listening to his teaching that came with such incredible authority. Why? Why would he betray Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver for a, a used car? It's a tough question. In my experience, people tend to want to think of Judas as just pure villain. That um, he was someone who was just so low and so greedy that he didn't care if Jesus died if he just got a little bit of silver. But there is a problem with that understanding of Judas, which is that it doesn't seem to account for all of the data that we have in the Bible. Right? Because we know from Scripture that as soon as Judas finds out that Jesus has been condemned to death, what does he do? He, he tries to give the money back. And he's, he's, he feels very guilty. He's very upset. He goes back to the chief priests and he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests say, well, that's your problem. And Judas is so racked with guilt that he immediately goes out and he hangs himself. So there had to be more going on with Judas than just greed. Right? If it was just greed, he would have been happy to hang on to that 30 pieces of silver, and he would not have gone and killed himself. So here's the theory I've heard that makes the most sense to me. Judas probably didn't just want money. He was probably happy to get some money. Uh, we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus was, or Judas excuse me, was in charge of the disciples' money bag. And it says that sometimes he would just help himself to the money in there. So he was a guy who liked money and wasn't above stealing some money. That's true. But the theory is that what Judas really wanted was to make Jesus establish his kingdom by force. Remember, Judas, like all the disciples, expected that Jesus would establish an earthly kingdom that he was going to do it soon. That was what all the people who welcomed him on Palm Sunday were hoping that he would do, that he would overthrow the current authorities and establish the long-awaited kingdom of the Messiah. But Jesus seemed to be dragging his feet about doing that. And Judas probably really wanted Rome to be overthrown and for the kingdom of the Messiah to come, and he probably had hopes that he'd be sitting on, you know, one of 12 thrones helping to reign in the kingdom of Messiah. He was thinking, let's get this show on the road. Let's do it. No more of this talk about loving your enemies and forgiving and turning the other cheek and all that stuff. Let's get the kingdom moving. And he thought, the only way 
to make that happen is if I force a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities. Because that would back Jesus into a corner where he's, only, he's got two options, right? Fight back or die. So, so this is the theory. And, and I, think, I think it's compelling. And it might help to explain why J Judas goes up to Jesus and kisses him. Right? Because it would kind of be a way of saying, look, I'm still with you. I'm still on your side. Now show him who's boss. Bring the kingdom. Of course, again, we can't know for sure. But I think that we should take this interpretation seriously. One, because it does help to account for the biblical data that we have. But two, because it takes Judas out of the realm of pure villain and makes him more relatable. And that makes him more of a warning to us. Right? Because if this interpretation is correct, Judas's real sin was trying to force Jesus to follow his political agenda. If that was how Judas betrayed Jesus, then we need to be very careful about using Jesus to advance our own political agendas. We need to make sure that the agenda that we're following is really Jesus's and not one that's led by our own pride or our own lust for revenge or desire for power. This interpretation forces us to reflect rather than to just see Judas as this impossibly wicked figure. And then finally, Gethsemane gives us a third example of the disciples' failure, which is Peter's violence. Now, Matthew doesn't specify that, we, that it was Peter who drew the sword, but we know from other Gospels that that was the case. Zealous Peter sees the crowd with their swords and clubs coming to arrest his lord and rabbi, and he springs into action, cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, in that moment, Peter probably thought that he was being faithful to Jesus as he bravely swung that sword and the blood spattered. Shortly before this, he had told Jesus that even if all the rest of these guys fall away, I will stick with you. Even if I have to die, I will never disown you, Lord. And he probably thought, as he swung that sword, I'm doing exactly what I promised. But Peter's violence is evidence that he hasn't yet understood his rabbi's way of doing things. Jesus tells him to put the sword away, and he says, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, those who use violence are going to end up experiencing violence. And we need to pay close attention to what Jesus says there, because he doesn't, he doesn't say, Sorry, Peter, this is a special occasion, so we're not going to fight. No, his words are a critique of violence in general as a means for advancing God's kingdom. In this moment, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples, this is not how we're going to get it done. This is not how we're going to build the kingdom of God. Now, in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus actually heals the injured man's ear right there in Gethsemane. 
And we're also told that the, the man's name was Malchus. And uh, what scholars say is that the only way that everyone would know that name is probably if that was somebody who was involved in the early church, right? Which is a really neat idea to consider, right? That the man who came to arrest Jesus might have ended up a believer, right? And if he did end up a believer, it wasn't because of Peter's sword, but it was because of Jesus's grace. So after the disciples realize that Jesus is not going to fight back and that he doesn't want them to fight back, that is the moment that they desert Jesus. They were willing to stick with Jesus if that involved fighting back, but once they realized that wasn't allowed, they said, I'm getting out of here. Even Peter, who had just promised that he would never leave him, that he would die for him, And that should remind us, a lot of people are willing to kill their enemies for Jesus, but it's when Jesus calls them to love their enemies that they lose their zeal. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see our propensity for spiritual laziness in Peter, James, and John. We see our tendency to try to force Jesus to follow our agenda in Judas. And we see our tendency toward religious violence and hatred of our enemies in Peter. A lot of human failure in Gethsemane. I'll close with this thought. The failures at the Garden of Gethsemane should remind us of another garden of human failure, the Garden of Eden. That garden at the beginning of the Bible was also a place of failure and betrayal. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's one command, and that rebellion set humanity on a trajectory of violence where just one generation later, The sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Cain killed his own brother. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the same human failure that we saw in the Garden of Eden. But there's a wonderful difference. In Gethsemane, there is a human who does not fail, and that's Jesus. And here's one way of thinking about it. In the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve said, my will, Lord, not yours. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, Lord, but yours. In the Garden of Eden, they took and ate from the forbidden tree, setting us on a path of sin and death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus accepted death on a tree to undo the curse that started at a tree to set us free from sin and death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus overcomes that long history of sin and death. The disciples couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. But Jesus, standing in our place, could do it. And he did. Amen? Lord, we thank you for doing what we could not do. 
Lord, I, I pray that this Holy Week we would be reminded all over again of the beauty of the gospel, that you stood in our place as our representative and overcame the long history of sin and death and violence that is our heritage, and that you started a new chapter, initiated a new creation that we can all be part of through faith in you. Lord, help us to to know that, to experience it, to believe it this week and always. In Jesus' name, amen.